0: Welcome to the NSCHBC Edge Podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to NSCHBC Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The Edge Podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants and Keck Medicine of USC, 500 internationally renowned doctors at a leading academic medical center, keeping you healthy, on track, and doing the things you love. TechMedicine.org, Los, Los Angeles. This week on the EDGE podcast, I welcome back certified healthcare business consultant and fellow NSCHBC member, David Zetter of Zetter Healthcare. David brings over 30 years of operational and healthcare experience, along with expertise in all areas of practice and facility management, including startups, buy-ins, provider compensation, and staffing, which leads me to our discussion today in the staffing space As we have read all about the staffing shortages in hospitals and doctors' offices and dentists' offices, and they're feeling the struggle to find good people, to fill important roles, we're trying to figure out how to make that happen and do we have the right people in the right space? So what we're gonna do today is we're just gonna have a conversation, making sure that I know it's hard to get that perfect person, but Dave and I are going to have a conversation about how he maybe deals with that with his clients on a daily basis, I deal with it maybe in a different way, and hopefully this will give you some insights on how to make sure that you've got at least the right people in the right um, spot, and not just in the revenue cycle management, but all throughout your office, because I think, and then I'll kind of turn it over to David, I think some things that some practices don't realize is that revenue cycle management. It's really, and I'm quoting from our good friend, uh, Vinny Sankarian, it's really the bridge between the clinical and business side of healthcare industry. And we're talking about from the start of scheduling a patient to getting reimbursements to the back office. It's it's really everywhere. It's not just in the collection or the coding area. So David, welcome back to the podcast, and we're going to get right into this.
0: Great, Terry. Glad to be here.
1: So it seems like many physician and dental practices, they don't realize that the, you know, the revenue cycle management and RCM, actually, I, I, that's kind of a new term for a lot of people. We used to just call it central billing office. They don't realize it really starts with the first impression and at the front desk. And having the right people at your front desk is just as important as having the right physician in the right practice. Would you agree? And where have you seen this gone wrong?
0: Well, absolutely. I agree. Um, you need the right person in each position doing the right job and having the right communication with your patients. But you know, from an RCM standpoint, my premise or my belief is that revenue cycle starts long before the practice ever opened. It starts with your credentialing and contracting, and that all has to be done properly to make sure that re- your revenue cycle, the rest of that process, goes off without a hitch and you're collecting you know, every penny that you should be collecting.
1: You know, no, I agree with that. And actually brought up a really good point for our listeners out there. You know, I I get a lot of questions on credentialing and on contracting. And the questions are, I appreciate them because we want you to field us with questions to make sure you're doing it correctly. But in saying that, that is a very, um, What's the job? and What's the word I'm looking for as far as a tough job? If you don't dot your eyes and cross your T's just right, and I'm talking about healthcare attorneys and healthcare consultants like David, and and get the right people to negotiate for you, it's not just about money. It's about new procedures and language and you know different physicians and parity. And so let's start there with the right people. I think you brought up a good point, David. I, when I see that in house. I see that being a detriment, actually, because usually it's it's somebody who they say, well, you might have some time. Can you do some credentialing? Or they give it to an office manager that doesn't have the background and knowing what to look for. You know, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I agree, Terry. I mean, part the biggest challenge with setting up any business is recruiting and, uh, you know, onboarding the proper person for the job, for the position and, and the responsibilities. But here's the the catch. So, you know, as far as your listeners are concerned, I would suggest that you think of this. You're a physician, some type of clinical practitioner that's going to set up a business. What do you know about each position, the responsibilities of each position, and how you truly want it to be operated and run? So let's take revenue cycle, for instance. What do you know about revenue cycle? Do you know the process? Do you know how billing's done? Do you know how the coding's done? Do you know what happens when the claim gets submitted? What is the follow-up work that needs to be done? If it gets denied, do you know what needs to be done there? Do you know what metrics mean and what metrics define what a good billing person or revenue cycle expert or anyone for that fact, do you know what the metrics are in order to measure the abilities and the uh, abilities of those staff members. If you don't know that and you don't know their job, you don't know the responsibilities and you've never performed it, then I pose this question. How do you interview and hire somebody? It's impossible. So most medical practices have revenue cycle people that don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to collect they don't know how to bill. And that is the reason why in almost every situation, when we perform a revenue cycle assessment, we always find holes in the dam that are causing profits to leak through the floor. Um, And that's in every single situation. We have never done a revenue cycle assessment that has not revealed problems with revenue cycle. And it's just because there's no oversight. I mean, a doc, any physician or owners most often have no idea what the billing staff do, so they don't even know how to evaluate their performance. So how do you measure, if you can't measure it or you're not measuring it, there's no way to manage the process and it's going to run away like a freight train.
1: And it's interesting you said that because I find the exact same thing. And, and again, you know, we appreciate from our clients when we get the questions, I even have a membership service to get those questions, but what opens our eyes sometimes with these questions especially also when we get contacted or you know David and I are pretty active on on you know LinkedIn and some of the business social media we see questions posed and it it's interesting because those questions in some of, a lot of them in my opinion sh- should already be knowledgeable staff knowing those questions and so it's it's tough when I see, for example, you know, a cardiology practice and I'll see, you know, they have a coder or a staff member there that's asking basic questions that I'm thinking, okay, how long has this not been known? You know, that you can't code this with this or that they're saying, you know, I'm getting denials. Perfect example. I got a, um, a practice that sent something out um, and said that they were billing for locums tenants for a year and they are starting to get denials and requests back for money after the 60 day point. Well, they should because that's a 60 day substitute physician and I'm not laughing that it's ha, ha," but I'm laughing like seriously, oh my gosh, how did you not know that before you implemented it. But backing up, you know, backing up a little bit just going into let's start at the front office. You know front office has always been kind of discounted in my opinion as far as a position of importance and i don't think that's that's correct i think it you know not just you don't just have the interaction with the patient in the first you know time they come in but also you're having to gather information that gets back to your revenue cycle managers and revenue cycle staff but also those patients you know need help I, i was in an orthopedic practice recently since we're all kind of heading back in person And I noticed the and I'm in the lobby and I always look at the lobby just to see you know how things run and before they they I tell them who I I am to bring me back, and there was two patients one had crutches and uh, one was had a ton of stuff in her hand, and the front desk you know they're going up checking in and they're handing them these clipboards to fill out information and the one guy in crutches he's trying to figure out how to get this older man trying to figure out how to get back to a chair. And nobody came from behind the desk, noticed his, you know, limitations, trying to help him out. And so I'm just like, you know, that's not going to fare well for you. I'm watching this process. I actually got up and said, let me help you get to a chair and held his clipboard and his pen. and, And I ended up helping him fill out. And I'm not even part of the practice. And the gal just looked at me and she was just like, oh, thanks. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. So when you start at the front desk, I've noticed that. And I'm not discounting what, you know, those of you that are listening that are great front desk people, we appreciate that. It's a, it's a tough job, but I am noticing that it is discounted. It's usually their, you know, family members or somebody that's looking just to break into medical. How do you look at that with your, with your clients, David, how do you tell them to staff their front office? Well, first
0: off, you know, the person, the first person that a patient meets the first time they come in is your... You know, everybody knows this. It's your first effort to make a first impression. Um, but everybody thinks about doing check-in and the person at the front desk is being the first person that a patient sees. Um, honestly, that's not the way I set up a practice. Um, normally, the first person a patient sees, at least in the practices that we set up, uh, especially knowing revenue cycle, we provide that position to be a patient financial counselor. So the first person a patient sees when they come in, they check in with the patient financial counselor, and that person reviews everything that is required of the patient to be a patient in the practice, including their financial policies. They obtain signatures. They explain the whole process of, you know, if it's a high procedure performing practice, they explain how they go about collecting for procedures. They explain the financial policies the obligations of that patient. They get signatures on everything. They also draft uh, authorization forms for either a credit card or debit card or ACH, draft authorization to be kept on file. It's all about being proactive. So I'm kind of combining this staffing piece into the, the revenue cycle process. We start with that position simply because that's how you set your practice up for success. I mean, you have to guarantee that you're gonna collect the money. And the problem with most practices is that they set everything up to be reactive. And that's why most medical practices or a lot of medical practices fail because they're not proactive and they don't set their policies and procedures and expectations of the patient to be how the practice wants it. They let, they unknowingly, they allow patients to run their business. So if a patient says, oh, I'm gonna be late, Well, what are you doing to penalize that patient so that they aren't late the next time? Uh, Same thing with no-shows and things like that. So the front desk is very, very important because they're the ones making the first impression. Now that depends on whether it's going to be a check-in person, you know, do they know how to collect money? Uh, Are they trained so that they're a part of the staff that's going to obtain those payments if there's a balance? And if you're being proactive, then you remove that responsibility from the front desk person because no employee likes asking for cash or money from patients. So if you set up the process up front and you're being proactive and you've got those authorization forms, now you don't need to call a patient. You don't need to send a statement. You don't need your staff at the front desk asking patients for money and, you know, feeling, um, you know, awkward or not knowing what to say to the patient and how to properly request a payment from them, you don't have to do any of that at the front desk. It's all done automated through your merchant services system if it's set up properly. So front desk people are very important and they need to be fully and thoroughly trained on what their responsibilities are. But you need to think about what those responsibilities are and how that process works in the whole process of running your revenue cycle.
1: Well, what I love about this is, you know, having a financial counselor, and that's the first, pers- you know, first uh, person that they see, is instead of, you know, just the front desk handing them a clipboard to figure it out. It, like you said, it's it's not the patient now kind of in control of the process. It's you're in control of the process. But one of the things, and I and I want to pose this to our listeners. I don't know if you've ever read any of the patient surveys that they get, and the surveys that they get, I think you'd be surprised. One of them, um, the first question is always about your financial process. They don't ask how they like the physician until question eight, so it, it's it's more about your processes, how you take that anxiety away from the patient that you know is nervous to come see you, or they wouldn't be there. But David, to David's point, and what a great way to, to really set up a practice. I love this is that when patients come in they're not only anxious about their condition and how that's going to work but in their mind they're also thinking will my insurance cover it what's my out-of-pocket and even though you may have had a brief conversation prior to them coming in having somebody sit down a liaison of sorts with the you know from the front desk to the from the clinical to the um cycles management office this is a great idea. So, you know, if you get definitely, if, if you need help setting that up, you know, get in touch with David because, you know, obviously that's his business. That would be just such a, a great way to get things started. I love that. That was great. Now, when we talk about, you know, getting really into the billing office and um, things about that, I've noticed that a lot of billing office staff are hired from within. So they move from front desk or back office, and a lot of them are spouses of the physicians what what are your thoughts on that i I realize you've already kind of commented on making sure people are you know um educated or trained in that position but i'm also finding that that's not always the case
0: uh that is correct terry um we often have clients setting up even you know we're doing a bunch of startups usually all year long and in many cases you're going to have a provider a doctor that's going to say, okay, I'm going to have my spouse or my child uh, perform these services or, you know, be my billing person or my office manager. Um, And I will immediately go right. I mean, they open the door, so I'm going to go right to it. And I'm going to start questioning, okay, what does this person know about this position? What do they know about the responsibilities, especially if they think they're going to do billing? I mean, I had a client recently that said that they were going to have their spouse do it. And I said, Well, I'm going to be quite blunt and honest with you. If you have your spouse do your billing, we will not be able to work with you because you will most likely fail. You'll most likely close your business because your spouse knows nothing about the billing. And this is a proceduralist and there's going to be an awful lot of modifiers, a lot of multiple procedures, things of that nature. And somebody that doesn't know anything about NCCI edits and you know, bundling of codes and the proper billing and even how the process works and even denied claims, I mean, how are you going to make any money doing that? They figured that she was just going to learn on the job. And I said, that, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, then you'll have to go find somebody else that's going to help you set up your practice. Because I'm not going to be standing there watching the ship go down. Um, I want all of our clients to be successful. And that, you know, my expectation is that we're going to help them be successful. And if I'm going to allow them to make a decision that's going to jeopardize that success, um, you know, it's they're less likely to be successful. And then I've got another client that went out of business and failed. And I don't want that on my record.
1: Right. Right. Well, I, had a, I have a client, too, that, well, actually, it's kind of an interesting similar story, but they his two daughters just graduated college, and um, they basically, he basically wanted one as the office manager, one as the billing manager, removing people who had already been there 20 years and moving them, downgrading them to, you know, coder bill or whatever. And then he wanted his brother to run the ASC and, and on and on. And I'm just like, doctor, what are you doing? I said, this is going to be a problem, and I can't support this. He goes, what do you mean? It's my choice who I want to staff. I go, no, you don't understand. You are taking a profitable practice and you're going to throw it away by someone who doesn't understand. I just interviewed all three of these staff, you know, these family members and as nice as they are and they're very nice people, they don't belong in these spots. Talk about the wrong people in the wrong positions. And he says, they'll learn on the job. He goes, they're, 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 you know, they're college educated. They just got out of college. I said, College educated versus experienced in the position are two entirely different things.
0: Absolutely,
1: I'm like you know you your one daughter she her she's from a design school. I'm like you know the the other one she's 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 dealing with she was wants to be a home ec teacher in in high school. I'm like you're making them work here. She goes well they can't find jobs right away and I want them in management positions and and it's it's actually almost like beating our head against a wall trying to explain why this isn't a good idea. So I did the same thing you did. I said, "Well, I'm going to go ahead and and drop you as a client. I can't I can't support this. It just won't work out." And they weren't happy about that, but they're like, "Okay, we're going to do what we want." Well, guess what? 6 months later, they couldn't figure out why their revenue went down almost 50% in 6 months and why they weren't getting paid on their ASC at all. They had nothing paid. They forgot to put revenue, you know, si- uh, revenue uh, codes on their um UB92s, nobody knew how to do, they thought it was HICFA forms for their ASC, and it was a nightmare. So I agree with you, you know, and, and again, to our listeners, make sure we're talking about the right people and the right, you know, jobs. It, it, You can't, like, we can't say this enough. You have to be proactive. Doing it at the beginning instead of hit or miss at the end, the cleanup is a lot worse than having a conversation about, you know what, you can learn the business in, in a in the red, maybe in the medical record department and start at square one or shadow somebody in the back office. But you need to learn the business before you're put into a management position. Now here's one. <laughs> Talk about the wrong staff in the wrong job. Do you ever have any of your clients say they're going to use nurse practitioners or PAs as scribes?
0: Um, I don't have a lot of them that state that. Actually, I don't have a lot of clients that utilize scribes. But I can tell you that, you know, even when I went to uh, an orthopedic practice not too long ago, um, they did have, you know, the orthopedist came in, so did the PA um, that basically documented everything while the orthopedist was doing the exam. Um, So the orthopedist full-time eyes and hands on me, and the PA was doing all the documentation, acting as a scribe. Now, you know, that's not a cheap scribe, but in their operation, they're very thorough, they're very efficient, they spend plenty of time. I mean, I literally had 25 minutes with the physician, um, which is unheard of, but they move through, they get everything done. They had even my summary of my visit handed to me when I checked out. Uh, they forwarded that summary immediately as I was standing there checking out. They said that they had just forwarded the uh, report on to my PCP. So, I mean, they were very thorough, efficient. Everything was nailed down. Probably one of the better practices, better run practices I have seen in quite some time. I mean, I no Sooner got there. I was checked in in less than 30 seconds and I was back in the exam room less than a minute later and less than 30 seconds later, the physician walked in. So it was literally bam, bam, bam and everything went off without a hitch. That is impressive. So they're obviously preparing or generating enough revenue in order to cover those costs where the PA is acting as the scribe or at least I would assume so. Now this is a health system owned practice, which again, you know almost dumbfounded me that a health system-owned practice ran that efficiently. um I don't see many, independent practices running that efficient so i thought it was well done i don't see an issue with it as long as you can make a profit uh so that you can keep your practice going but i would normally think that you're going to hire somebody as a scribe at an appropriate amount um but you know maybe the pas have more responsibility in that practice uh than just being a scribe i know they also assist in surgeries and other things so they're generating some significant revenue. I think it's okay in those situations, but you really have to look at the return on your investment. If you're paying somebody a lot more to be a scribe, are they g- helping you generate more revenue uh, by you being able to see more patients and even the patient seeing a quality and uh, a quality time with that physician during their encounter?
1: Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. It, it's interesting. The reason I brought it up is that, like you said, it's a very expensive employee. So just, you know, again, to our listeners, make sure that if this is the capacity you're using, your mid-level provider, that you have some kind of a compliance manual or documentation why you're doing that. Because as as the expense of that employee, they're typically expected to be seeing patients in a clinical capacity, not in a capacity, which is completely different. You know, one thing I was going to ask you, how has telehealth impacted the workflow processes you were mentioning with a financial counselor and things like that, is that still able to do that and implement that with telehealth?
0: Well, normally, you know, if we've got uh, in a practice that has a patient financial counselor, normally they run, we set up the whole telemedicine process uh, a bit differently because obviously we want to get the information um, from the patient and, you know, make them aware of all the policies, procedures, and so on. Now, in some situations, I've got clients that are using telemedicine. They're using an app where the patient automatically has to provide a credit card uh, at the time they actually pay. You know, in some cases, they pay for their visit up front when they schedule it, and that payment is also the charge if they fail to show. So the practice keeps that payment, um, and that's all communicated up front. So in some in those kinds of situations. We communicate with the patient either electronically or over the phone or even via Zoom or Teams meeting so that the patient is aware of what the policies, procedures are, they've completed and signed off on the financial policy in advance and so on. So every every practice is set up differently on that uh, because they run telemedicine differently. But again, think proactively, how are you going to communicate to the patient up front no matter what type of patient they are, whether they're seen in office or in a facility, or even them you know, via telemedicine. How are you going to communicate what your expectations are and your policies and procedures are to the patient? That's where most pa- practices fail because they're not communicating this stuff. They don't have documented financial policies, and you know the staff isn't even trained on how to do this properly. So it's all pulling this together, putting it in a nice, neat package communicating it properly, implementing it properly and then ensuring execution is proper as well.
1: right no and I, that makes sense especially when now we're dealing with so much virtual care. So I wanted your thoughts on the physician's role in the you know the billing office, the revenue cycle management office. Because I'm, you know, and you mentioned before, a lot of times the physicians don't have a clue what's going on with people who are coding, billing, submitting their claims, and collecting for them. Without micromanaging, what what do you give advice to your clients, your physician clients, on how they keep on top of things? Because as you and I know, and this is not against any physicians out there, the the entrepreneurial, uh, managerial um, role that you play isn't always kind of innate. You have to learn it and understand it. So what is your advice there?
0: Well, again, I go back to, okay, when was the physician ever trained on revenue cycle? What what are they going to accomplish? And what is what is the goal by having the physician involved? So normally, I say, keep the providers and the clinical staff out of their revenue cycle process. But they need to be made aware. I mean, owners have a right to know what's going on with their business. So, you know, an administrator should provide owners reports, financial reports, and also reports on departments in a practice. I mean, especially if they're larger practices, you know, you should be providing or have a dashboard that monitors the metrics of the revenue cycle department. How much revenue was collected on this day or this week compared to the last week? I mean, you should have all these kind of metrics, which we call a dashboard, that communicate all the pertinent information of that department to the owners, So they know how it's operating, let them know what the metrics are, how much, what are your days, uh, days in AR, you know, what is your, uh, clean claim rate, uh, submission rate? How many did deni- not, what's your denial rate? Uh, how many denials are there? Uh, you know, can you communicate that when you get a denial that that gets resolved because, now, all the providers and the staff are educated to ensure that that kind of denial doesn't happen again. I mean, what are all the things that are important to the practice? What is being communicated to the owners so that they know the operation is being there's oversight being provided, people are being held accountable, and you know you know, educate those physicians. look if you know your days in AR is you know uh, so many day so many days it's taking you 60 days to collect on a service that was performed 60 days ago i mean that's a long time so how do you reduce that what should be the correct number so provide them hey here's the goal here's where we we're at and how are we going to achieve hitting this goal because and why is this the goal what makes it the proper number help educate them so that they understand it they don't have to know how everything is done They just need to know and be convinced that, one, you're telling them truthful information and you're communicating how the practice is operating, and then make sure it actually results in the proper numbers based on all this data that you're providing the physicians. No different than if you're going to provide them financials every month, you need to explain to them what a balance sheet is if they aren't familiar with what a balance sheet is. Do they know how much capital they have uh, from all the owners? That way they have cash available to them if you know at the beginning of the year they don't have cash flow coming in because of deductibles uh, having not been met. So you're going to take a lot longer to have cash flow coming in. Did the owners capitalize the business so that they have some money to pay their bills and their payroll during that time? Or do they have to go into a line of credit? So it's all of this stuff educating those owners on what the operations and the financial status and health is of the practice. And you have to do the same thing for revenue cycle management. That dashboard should be the Bible on how revenue cycle is operating. And you need to make sure that the metrics are accurate, especially for the specialty. Your days in AR are gonna be much higher in an orthopedic practice than it would be in primary care because you're probably dealing with auto and workers' comp issues as well. Um, so if you have high percentage of payer mix on those type of payers, then you're going to have a much higher, you know, days in AR, or you're going to have much higher AR trying to collect that. So it's really depends on what your specialty is, what type of practice it is, how you run it, what your policies and procedures are. And it's all about knowing all of that stuff and how you provide oversight in order to measure it and manage it.
1: So you brought up some really good points, but also a lot of information that I know that I have clients, whether it be a single physician or a practice of five or even a, a large health system that where they have you know 50 to a 100, that a lot of times they generate these reports and these reports get you know put on the doctor's desk under the piles and piles of other things they have, and they never really look at them, they never really sit down to analyze them. So question back to you, David. Is, is that something that your business does where a doctor says, I don't want to deal with this, so can you just manage this part and then give me the gist?
0: I guess what we need to understand really is um, ensuring that you've got your business set up properly. What it comes down to is really having somebody that understands the medical practice and the specialty and ensuring that You're going to, whoever that is, is going to make sure that all, everything how you operate is going to be nailed down so that you always have duties, responsibilities, oversight, and accountability. And you have to, those that are providing the oversight and obtaining that accountability have to have knowledge about what everyone is doing that they're providing the oversight to. So you don't want an administrator that doesn't know anything about the front desk or even about revenue cycle, providing oversight to the front desk or revenue cycle if they don't know anything about it. That doesn't make any sense. So it's no different than, you know, I've got, I had, um, have several practices where we assign responsibilities uh, of certain categories of the operations or the overall practice to certain board members. So one board member, one owner may have responsibility for, you know, um, uh, maintenance on the facilities maintenance. And another one may have responsibility for HR, another one for operations, and another one for revenue cycle. Well, you need to educate those providers or those owners on what their responsibilities are going to be and help them understand what the responsibilities of that department is underneath them so that when they are brought an issue from that department and they have to address it, they're gonna have some idea on either what to do or who to go to in order to obtain that information to ensure that the practice operates properly. And I mean, those those are the most important points of just making sure that you've got the proper staff in place, you've got oversight, and those people will also help support the staffing of the practice and making sure, you know, if you've got somebody that oversees operations, well, do we have enough staff hired? Um, Does the nurses station, uh, is it staffed properly? Do we have the right staff in there? Do we have the right number of staff? And if we do have a shortage, who's gonna be responsible for ensuring that those positions are filled? I mean, do we have an HR manager uh, that can assist the physician that oversees the operations, as well as department managers, if you have a larger practice, that are going to assist them with that recruiting to help with those staffing shortages. So, I mean, it's everything's got to be set up properly, and you've got to have communications in place, and you've got to predict all the things that may potentially happen. Now, obviously, there's going to be things that you're not going to predict or not be aware of, but when those you know, when those ugly faces arise, you need to be able to address them and know who you're going to address them with, who has responsibility, and so on, so that you keep things consistent, you're addressing them as quickly as possible, and you're keeping the operation as sane as possible, because that's where things start falling apart, stress happens, then you start losing more staff because people don't have control of the situation, and it just looks like a circus. And then your employees get disenchanted, and they're you know nowadays it's not going to take much for somebody to just say, "Hey, I'm going elsewhere
1: right and now and you you've seen the staffing shortages out there what What do you recommend as far as where to find the you know quality employees, the right employees? I know with coders and billers and things, there's associations that have job markets on their website and local chapters that put out you know, job feelers. I know LinkedIn's a great place that we can see. What do you what do you um, you know give advice to your clients as far as finding staff for those positions?
0: Well, we tend to do quite a bit of recruiting for revenue cycle staff, uh, administrators. Um, you know, providers, that type of thing, um, you can always go to your normal sources. You've got online things like ZipRecruiter, Indeed, and so on. But you've got to go well beyond that because, let's face it, in today's environment, after two and a half years of the pandemic, you know, the good people are already employed. Um, technically, anybody out there that's uh, that needs a job, they aren't as good as they should. Be. Otherwise, they would have a job employers recognize this. Now, and most people that are very good at their job aren't going to quit before they have another job in place. So you're dealing with less than optimal candidates out there right now. And if you really want good candidates, you've got to be competitive, not only in compensation, but in benefits and in working environment and in oversight. So you've got to be able to convince people that, hey, you're a better employer than the previous employers they had. Um, You've got to go out there and look at other places like uh, when we're looking for administrators. We not only advertise online, we're also going to the local state MGMA chapter or uh, other uh, organizations, you know, whether it's a local coding chapter, things of that nature. We get the word out to everyone we possibly can. So that we can get as many candidates as possible. You may find somebody, you know, that already has a job that may be enamored with your position uh, and the responsibilities of that position if you get it to come across their desk or in front of their eyes. So you've got to get it, you've got to cast a wide net in order to make sure that you're getting in front of as many eyes as possible so that they can at least consider the possibility or the potential of the position that you're offering. So that's one way. You need to make sure that whoever is screening, well, first off, if you're communicating a a position, you need to communicate properly what the job duties and responsibilities are. That way, any candidate knows exactly what the expectations are. If you don't have that clear, then you're gonna bring in candidates that haven't been communicated everything that you expect and that's not going to be their fault if they don't produce. So you want the job description out there, all their duties and responsibilities nailed down. Be as communicative and transparent as possible so they know everything that's coming to them, benefits, compensation, all the little good things that many people forget to communicate, um, You know, even the working environment. And then you want somebody that knows and understands the position being hired so that they can properly screen, interview, and even provide an offer to those candidates. They need to understand that position. Again, if you're a physician, you don't know anything about billing, and you're going to hire a billing manager, how can you possibly even insert yourself into that process? You're setting yourself up for failure. So, you need somebody that understands how to screen a candidate that's supposed to be responsible for all of your revenue
1: right. And it's interesting because i you know, and all that I agree with, absolutely. The other thing that I think employers need to know, and I'll end on this, is the fact that you know everything David said you know compensation packages benefits working environment you know if you offer hybrid if, if that role even allows for any kind of virtual work but the other thing is make sure you're training people that come in one of the biggest complaints I see from any employee that leaves any kind of, of work whether it be in healthcare or any other um, genre out there is the lack of training and they so they feel lost they feel like they were set up to fail and it's training also on your operational flow. What do you do? Not just necessarily what their job is. So make sure that that is also part of that hiring process.
0: Oh, I don't disagree with that. Let me give you a real quick example. I've got a colleague that just left employment of a company for 30 years, left and went to a very large global organization that makes uh, basically uh, makes breaker boxes, breakers, and so on. Well, he was hired And his first day on the job, he was asked to travel to Texas to oversee a project. Zero onboarding, zero communications with HR. They basically made him buy a plane ticket and he didn't even know where his office was, but he had to go to a different state and he was out there for a week. Even when he came back, he still didn't know where to sign up for his health benefits. Uh, This is a large global organization and they onboard their people literally in the worst possible manner ever. No training, no communication, just send him on his way and bam, thrown into the fire. Unfortunately, that happens all too often.
1: It does, and there's a big company out there that just decided to drop their healthcare division or part of it, and they were hiring nurses. Um, and telling them after they were hired and putting them in a position that they had to get licensed in three other states. And they had no idea. It wasn't even part of, like you said, the onboarding process. So lack of training, lack of understanding what the position is, that is going to hurt you more than anything. So make sure you are training your staff and they understand what they're getting themselves into.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So we would like to thank David today for being on the podcast, your insights into business and this very, you know, tough topic. And as far as staffing, revenue cycle, but also in the office and physician needs, um, we definitely appreciate your insight.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: You can reach David at NSCHBC.org. Go to the Find the Consultant tab, type in the first name, and your information will pop right up for you. Again, thank you for David for his expertise, and as a reminder to our listeners, our monthly free webinar series, our next series is September 21st on the Information Blocking and Cures Act update. You don't want to miss it. Also our Medicare quarterly updates, our next one is September 28th, and that one will have a ton of information for a lot of the Medicare updates that we've been seeing in the news. You can register at NSCHBC.org, and also check out all of our topics of discussion. Also, we will be presenting a two-day virtual summit on behavioral and mental health, all of the different revenue cycle management avenues there, and also dealing with the OIG, making sure you can integrate NPPs and everyone into your uh, staffing needs for that. And so that will be in October. So again, go to NSCHBC.org and check out all of our educational offerings. So that's it for us today, everyone. Please join me next month when my guest will be NSCHBC member Mark Lyon, and we'll be talking physician and dentist retirement planning. So everyone, make it a great day, a great rest of your month, and thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at NSCHBC.org the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.